How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I am Jake. And you're listening to Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 113. Yeah, 13. Good year for film. Oh, yes. Yeah. Speaking of films, Jake, ten, are you ten, ready 13 to is the year I'm referring to. Your 2013 film quote a go. <laughs> sure, okay. <laughs> so, I think you're uh, you're 2-0 and o so far. Yes, I am. So, you're off to a great start. But both weeks I really struggled mm. because last week was The Hunt, which... That was the only film I could think of because you told me it was a foreign language film that you quoted. I couldn't. I literally couldn't think of anything else. That's the only reason why I said it. And what was what was twenty eleven? What did you do? The, oh, um, that was a tough one too. Like I struggled. Oh, drive, drive. It was drive. It. Yeah. All right. So we'll see this time how I do. We will know soon enough if you are Leonardo da Vinci or just think you are. Ooh. I've definitely seen this, yeah? You most certainly have. Okay. We've talked about it on the show. Oh, interesting. I'm rattling through my... I thought you said Leonardo DiCaprio, and I was like, oh, Wolf of Wall Street. Oh. But it's not that. Um, but if you think you are... Oh. I don't know. I'm I'm drawing a blank. This must be something I haven't seen in a long-ass long time. This is the 2013 Danny Boyle Jobs. Is that a 2013 film? Yep. I thought it was 2015. It's that can't uh, be right. Steve Jobs, 2013 film. What in the world? Oh, you know, are you... Am I thinking of... No, we're not talking about Jobs, are you? The um... Oh, yeah, Jobs. Let's see. What in the world? I could have swore that was a 2015 film. Yep. Just to quickly verify. Oh, yeah, that isn't the Danny Boyer one. That is the Aston Kutcher one. Well, there you go. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Zeke, is it Jobs you silly or Steve boy. Jobs? You silly boy, Zeke. Yeah, that one sucks. In comparison to the Danny Boyle film. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but you're right. Jobs, the Aston Kutcher version, is 2013. And I actually, I've seen it many times, actually. That's good, because I haven't seen it. <laughs> because for two years, that was the only Steve Jobs film that I had. <laughs> it wasn't as good as the other one. All right, well, that's fine. I'll take the loss, because I'm guessing that's definitely the quote from the 2013 version. So, I'll take that loss. I'm, I'm not going to get a HD, Zeke. Not no, we still can. I can, but at this rate, I barely got the other two either. <laughs> we thought this was going to be easier. <laughs> yeah, but it's maybe because you filled your brain with so many contemporary films. Mm, or or way them. older films, even. Speaking of older films, Jake, what have you caught in the last week? Well, I've caught a couple of Tom Holland films. Not very old films mm. at all. They're both 2021 releases, in fact. Um, and that reminds me, I actually have so many films to log on Letterboxd because I've been writing the reviews now, so it actually just takes way more effort for me to log the films. Mm-hmm. But that, that's fine. I'm happy. So the two films I watched were Cherry and Ky- uh, Ch- uh, Ch- Kyle, Child, Jesus, Chaos Walking. Yes. Yeah, that CH gets here. Um, yeah, so we've talked a bit about Tom Holland jokingly in the last week or two about how he's on a bit of a a cold streak. In terms of his, not his performances. He, I don't think I've seen him in a film where I was like, he's bad in this. I'm, I haven't seen that. I think he's just made 
and I want I don't want to say bad choices mm-hmm. because I don't know how much of these were his choice. You know, I mean, the, the case of Chaos Walking, I'm sure that seemed like a fine idea at, at the time. Well, oh, it's based on this like novel kind of you know another Hunger Games s type novel series. It could turn into a little franchise, and um, I'm guessing he didn't anticipate like the writing or the the onset stuff. So I'll start with Chaos Walking first. So, like I said, it was based on this sort of a novel young adult series. And the reason I was so interested in it is because, number one, Charlie Kaufman wrote the original draft. Oh, man. Um, which makes me very fascinated, especially mm. because the premise is so wild, where it's it's about this world where only men exist and all of their thoughts are seen and heard through this thing called noise or the noise. Um, and then the one... The one lone woman, Daisy Ridley, arrives, and, and it's like that seems like such a wild, weird, and maybe sexist premise. So I was interested in Charlie Coffin's version. It turns out there was six other writers who have altered the script in one way, shape, or form, and then there were extensive reshoots because apparently it was unwatchable, is what a lot of the reports were saying. Yeah. Now, so I went to Hoyts to watch this because I was that curious. I really hoped it was coming to stand, but it, it didn't. And I'll say this it is watchable. You know, it does sort of have its beginning middle and end it's not it's not, it's not really one of, boring one of the softest like compliments you can ever give something i can watch it no well like in the sense that i didn't like i never thought i, I saw someone like leave the theater and like not come back i was like mm-hmm. i wasn't at that stage where like you're, you're there for most of the film you walk out 10 minutes before the ending it's like just stick it out man. anyway um yeah, I thought. Look, I thought it was watchable against the general, um, the initial reports. Yeah, that wasn't watchable. And I will say, I actually did the whole thing with the noise, which sounds ridiculous. This idea that that people can like hear your thoughts or see your thoughts, and it's like, how does that translate to film? How in the world does any sort of plot or communication or dialogue mm-hmm. happen with that in mind? I actually kind of liked the way they dealt with the noise because it does have this sort of sound wavy effect that plays over they do establish that certain characters are better at controlling their noise as in keeping their force in themselves and mads mickelson's character he's sort of like the mayor of the town and uh the surprise surprise the eventual villain that's chasing these the two young kids down but like his character uh, is has m- more control of it mm-hmm. and he's actually able to manipulate stuff so people see like fences and feel like they're trapped when it's actually that's just his imagination and and so they established that people are more powerful than others with it and i like the visualization of it but that's about as far as i can go in terms of compliments for the film i thought it was otherwise really bad mostly again i asked based on the premise like this sounds kind of sexist i can't tell for a futuristic sci-fi film releasing in 2021 it not only felt kind of sexist, but it felt really binary, like shockingly binary. And the mm-hmm. idea that, uh, and look, it's like the, films like this don't have to embrace like you know the multiple genders that there are out there and inclusivity and all of that. Mm-hmm. The films allowed to be binary and be like, we're just going to focus on the difference between man and woman. But nothing about it ever feels clever. It's all sort of like subdued subtext in the sense that, oh look. Daisy Ridley's character can't swim. But look, Tom Holland's character can't read. Mm-hmm. Oh, look, their thoughts are externalized and they can't control it. But women are internal and they don't speak. And, the, and it's like, none of none of this is clever. Mm-hmm. You know, or I, I didn't find any of it clever. And it just, it just kept... And kind of has that kind of undertone of kind of being quite offensive. 
Well, I don't even know if the offensive. Uh, some people will find this offensive. I'm shocked that I haven't read anything from people being like, "Oh, this film is problematic and yada yada yada." But I, I was just like, it was kind of uncomfortable because it felt like there was nothing smart about this, you know, wild sci-fi premise. And the whole thing is, and this is fair enough that you know Tom Holland's character Todd has never seen a woman before, and of course he has all of these wild thoughts that are being externalized so Daisy really keeps hearing about oh she's cute she's cute I want to kiss her you know oh I want to bang her this and that and it's like it goes nowhere it just is mm-hmm. so it's like by the film's end this is still a common thread is him just wanting to like sleep with her and her being mildly annoyed by it but not really doing anything about it or not really saying like hey stop that I mean there is a couple of things of like, hey, stop that. And he's like, well, I can't control it. Those are my thoughts. This is like when they're hiding from an enemy, for example. But it was just so strange. And and the ending was really bad as well. Like, it just kind of amounted to nothing. And it just ends. So, yeah. It's sitting on a very rough 21% of Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, people are really rough on it. I, I Like I said, I think it's watchable. But if you start to think about it for more than five seconds, you're like, this is just so strange and... and, and could have had more potential i'm not really sure um and, and the editing also just as a side is r- really bad as well like there are Two many point, 2.6 on uh letterbox yeah people aren't a big fan i i i oh i have rated it haven't i, I already gave it my two star it's everything else i haven't rated yet but it's the same but... guy who did edit tomorrow yeah well i'm sure he was just sort of asked to come along i mean most of these problems are the script like in terms of his direction, like I said, the fact that it's watchable and I wasn't necessarily bored at any point, um, like really bored as in like I'm going to leave the theatre, like that's a testament to him and even the visualisation and explanation of the noise where I actually kind of like, I was like, oh, this is actually a relatively simple idea, this mm. idea of the noise. Like the fact that he can translate that as a director, I thought that was great. But the material he's working with is, is really bad. Moving into Cherry, Jack. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Speaking of working with material that's not great, I watched Cherry, and I have every reason to be excited about Cherry. It's directed by the Russos. It's their first film since um, Avengers Endgame, of course. And the thing that I was really excited about any potential Russos film, especially after the Marvel uh, MCU films, where the thing I took away from their direction was precision. Mm. I thought those films, in terms of the direction, were so so specific and that it felt like only they could really do those films because it would just crumble under anyone else's direction that there was such a precise sort of laser focus with those films. and i know like infinity ward is bloated with characters and endgame is bloated with story but it's like my point is that those bloated ridiculous roster of characters and storylines they made it into a fairly coherent um, I guess five and a half hour story across those two films like that I'm still very impressed by what they did with those films mm-hmm. if you think about it from that perspective so I was excited Zeke that they would bring that position to a smaller more personal film that they would do that's you know around their hometown and um, you know stuff that's very personal to them the story mm-hmm. and everything and I didn't actually realize to halfway through this is actually based on a real guy's story which does change the context a little but I'm going to ignore that for the purposes of this story. Within 10 minutes, I was already in the Less is more, man. Less is more. <laughs> it is so 
stylistically and narratively, like, again, bloated. It's a mess. This film is such a mess. And I will say I like the second half better because I actually kind of forgot about the stylistic flares of, oh, look, we're going to have prologue, chapter one, chapter two. The whole screen is in red. Oh, there's a scene where Tom Holland, like, pops a pill, and now everything's, like, white, and there's this, like, weird, wavy motion thing. And then he joins the army, and now it's in four by three for no reason. And it's like, there's so, this is so much they're throwing at the screen. I'm like, what the hell is the point of any of this? They took, like, a, a line of Adam McKay films. <laughs> But then lost the purpose and context but of Adam, Adam McKay's McKay. style is consistent, like, throughout. It's like, yeah, it looks like an episode of The Office, but at least the whole movie looks like an episode of The Office with the, the quick pans and everything, the comedic stuff. And I mean, even this has Tom Holland talking to camera like Ferris Bueller, and it's like, why? Like, what point? There's already voiceover, which is obnoxious, and it, it, and again, Tom Holland, he's trying everything in his power to make this film work and his performances his agent must hate him or something no i just uh, i don't know and i was surprised because i just assumed oh these must all be sony projects they're not i think the only sony projects are uh, um uncharted and spider-man and uncharted doesn't even come out yet so it's it's just funny because he's trying uh, i can't i think the russos wrote it i'm guessing they wrote it but there is so much going on it's just completely blown. And like I said, I like the second half because it feels a little more focused. It's like post-war where Tom Holland and, and his girlfriend, it's a, a Cara Bravo, C-I-A-R-A Bravo. Mm-hmm. Um, she's excellent in it. I mean, they both are, but it's like as actors, they probably were drawn to the script because like, wow, look how, much, look how much my character goes through. Look how much happens. And it's like because your character has everything ever happened to them, like throughout the course of this film, you have Tom Holland being sort of this edgy teenager who goes to college and then he turns into sort of this not abusive but like kind of a bit risque boyfriend to joining the army to having ptsd to becoming a a drug sort of addict to becoming a bank robber and it's like i know this is based on a person's real life story but having all of that while also having these cutaway gags where you see other people and then it goes into weird amounts of detail of their day and it's like, why is... Like, this is too much. There is yeah. nothing for me to hold on to with this film. And my favourite part, in speaking of cutting away to other people's stories, when he's in the army, there's, like, a shot of, like, a guy. He's like, he's like oh, I can't clean off the blood of my wedding ring. Um, and it's like, okay, that's a that's a nice attempt, a valiant attempt at the, the, sim, the symbolic thing of, like, war and, and you know, the blood on your... The stain on you, the stain it has on you, and, of course, he has PTSD later in the film. But the thing is, this was just a random guy. And it's like, Tom Holland was already... And I keep saying Tom Holland. His name's Cherry in the film. It's the titular role. And I think it's also meant to be like, you know, popped your cherry when you go to war and stuff. But at this point, the character is also married. So why not just have that symbolic thing happen to him with his own ring being bloodied? Why is it just this other random guy? Yeah, it's just, it just, why, I don't know. This film goes in so many different strands everywhere. Like, it just strands out. and uh, I feel like I'm ranting. I've been ranting for You're a very while. very frustrated. No, it's just, I watched these two films back to back, and like I said, I feel bad for Tom Holland because he's good in both of these films. He tries in both of these films, but there is so much wrong with uh, the writing in particular. Bro. And, and I'm sorry, but the Russos, like, we saw their debut feature we saw welcome to collingwood 
and it was like a nice fun heist film and and then I think they took the wrong lessons away from the MCU mm-hmm. well of like look how much we're capable of doing in a single film let's go even wilder with it let's get stylistically crazy and it doesn't work at all maybe we'll have to wait on their next film maybe they'll reel it back hopefully hopefully I hope they see the feedback because this isn't getting good reviews at all no. and, and I hope they realise like they almost had a good film here it, The sec- again the second half it just kind of plays it more straight it's not trying to stylistically wow you it's yeah. just okay let's relax on these performances of these drug addicts and that's way more interesting just don't try too hard that's all I have to say less is more less is more <laughs> All right, well, there's some more stuff I've seen, but I'm, I'm actually going to bring that up in the Korea section, believe it or not. Groovy. Until then, Zeke, what have you watched recently? Well, I've recently? also um, sort of gone through and watched a couple of films this week. One of those films I'm not going to touch on because I think we might be addressing it in Ooh. later weeks in the show. Exciting. Um, it is a award season contender. That's the only... It's the uh, clue. That's my only clue I'll give for it. <laughs> um, and... Yeah, so I actually also managed to catch... I actually caught two Robin Williams films. One of them I caught last week I forgot to talk about, but I'll bring it into this week for okay. the first time. And then I revisited another one. They were the two films that he kind of did in quick succession into the mid-late 80s, mm. which were Good Morning Vietnam and Dead Poets Society. And I think I might have talked about Dead Poets Society because I only really watched that in the last couple of years. So the show might have been going when I talked about it at some point in time. And I re- and rewatching it felt even more positive about it than I did the first time. That's done by Peter Weir, that oh, yeah. film. Um, and, wonderful director. Yeah, wonderful Australian director. Mm. Um, <laughs> and um, so I won't talk too much about that, but hopefully maybe one day we might visit it on the show. Um but Good Morning Vietnam, that was a it was a real interesting because that was for the most part if you follow sort of Robin Williams' career, that was his first like real kind of push into that sort of mainstream film conversation. Like he was okay. a um, it really elevated. He started was, in stand up, correct? Or yeah, and he had a couple of shows, and then he also did a couple of films. But I think Vietnam was the first elevation into the drama sort of mm. like taking him out of his his comedy sort of area kind of very similar to something like you know like we were talking about with someone like you know even like bill burr in the last year with you know his appearance on mandalorian and staten island it's oh, like yeah. he's definitely starting to push a little bit closer to the i mean staten island is still technically a comedy but there isn't there's drama elements and there's a drama well he has a pretty big Role and he's not really playing a comedic role. In no, that. he plays a pretty s- stiff upper lip role in that compared yeah. to Pete. Da- Pete Davidson's definitely the the comic relief yeah. character. Um, and I definitely think Vietnam. This is sort of it's the similar sort of. I actually think it's a similar sort of thing to Bill Burr with with Staten Island. He still gets moments where he gets to be funny, yes. Yeah. For the most part, because the, the, the content is not a comedian. Oh yeah, because of the content and the world he's in, in particular mm. with Vietnam, the you know obviously the Vietnam War and stuff like that. There's very serious elements in there, and has a very young Forrest Whitaker in it too. Oh wow, nice, um, which is pretty pretty interesting. And yeah, I really was it. it. Who or are you thinking of? I'm thinking of Dead Poets Society. Oh no, Who's, in Dead Poets Society, it was Ethan Hawke. That's who I was thinking of. Young Ethan Hawke. Nice. 
just crazy. <laughs> but so I really enjoyed those two films. The other film I watched here, like I said, I won't talk about it for now. So we can move into our Keep career section. Oh, I finished One Division. Yes, yes, yes. You finished One Division. Um, just quick, what did you think of the ending? Did you like it or not? I actually didn't mind it as much as. Like, I, it's not just you. There's a good portion of people that are quite frustrated with the ending, kind of sort of getting pushed back onto its comfortable back foot that the MCU has, has probably utilised. Mm, okay. But I also, my counterpoint to that is, because I'm very lukewarm on the MCU and have been probably since Civil War. Uh, it was probably when I hit my peak for... MCU films, I, I've seen all of them, um, I've gone to a lot of them in the cinema, but I've mostly just gone because other people want to see them, and you know, yeah, I like going to the movies, um, but, <laughs> and I really like this show. Flashback me dragging to, you to Endgame yeah, at 11pm. I mean, where do we think this was going to go? Like, I'm not really sure how this film would have ended, because even if you take films that are meant to be, you know... Uh, subverting the superhero genre or, or at least putting a fresh spin on it like Guardians, they they still end in a big Herculean fight, you know, like a blockbuster fight. So I f- You know what I think it is? I think part of it is because, obviously, this is segmented into nine episodes, eight, nine? Nine, nine episodes, episodes. That the fact that it had that third act sort of typical superhero ending, I think it stuck out more than it usually does because everyone loves Logan. But you got to remember that Logan ends with him fighting himself in, like, a silly claw battle. Mm. Like, that's how it ends. But no one talks about that. Everyone's like, yeah, Logan's an amazing film because of this and this and this and this. And I think with WandaVision, it stuck out more because even though we both are like, yes, we love shows that come out weekly and you can't just binge them and we get to talk about them. Because it's its own segmented discussion, the last episode, mm-hmm. that I think people, like myself, frankly, were more upset that it's like, oh, well, of course it's mm. how it's going to end. It's tricky, though, because it's like, especially even if you look at, um, like, the superhero TV show formula is not, it's new to the MCU, but it's not a new concept in, in cultural society. I mean, Netflix had put out, what, four or five shows before they lost all the rights to those shows at that point, where they... Ended. Oh, like Jessica Jones and Daredevil. Uh, Daredevil, and Luke Cage. Punisher. Yeah, Punisher. Yeah. Um, and but I think most people weren't watching those shows in comparison to the, this canon. Yeah, MCU. this is obviously probably yeah. going to be easily the most exposed out of all of them. And the same thing goes for, um, you know, the DC ones, like The Flash and The Arrow and ah, stuff yeah. like that. Like, uh, these shows have existed in the last 10 or so years. They're just, well, they're actually on either mainstream TV or they were... Um, behind Netflix and, um, I yeah I guess because this is a this is more a series than a season. Like those shows were definitely seasoned formats; they weren't series format. Um, That's another good point. Is that I don't think we can expect a second season of the show. This is the ending of this yeah. series. Yeah, that's a good point as well. Yeah, this definitely does feel like a series. Um, and I look, I like the ending. Um. I'm not surprised that's where we ended up. I think it was never going to be some weird battle of wit sort of stuff. I like I didn't expect anything different, so my expectation was met. Now, was it was it as interesting as some of the other big blockbuster superhero fights? No, absolutely not. I mean, it was quite muted compared to like you know you take like that final sequence in Civil War between 
you know, um, what's it, Winter Soldier, uh, Cap and Iron Man. That's a that's an epic sort of sequence. Um, right, but it's more personal, and and they're not this flying was around too. Like well, it, what between two characters who really only met like an episode prior? It's true. Yeah, and we're not spoiling it because that that discussion is coming from the Black Widow episode. I was okay with it. I thought the last five minutes were really solid, um, but I don't know what other people expected. So the fact that they're disappointed or frustrated, or you know, characters are potentially you know going to be coming back. It's I. I'm like, what do you expect? Like people, I, I like. Well, I'm re- hoping to expect some sort of continuation of what the show was actually doing and you're right they usually do something the mcu usually does something interesting it's just before like, the third act how many times has loki yeah. been brought back yeah i don't know i think <laughs> we're getting into spoiler territory now so let's yeah. we'll get back that's to my that end game reference in another... though i mean he's come back for now like the third time now so it's like people yeah, don't well, die. he's got his own show and spartans don't weeks. die they just go missing in action yeah all right well Let's do a little awards update, Zeke. So later today, the Oscar nominations will be official, so that's exciting. Mm. We can talk about that next week. And then hopefully we can go a few weeks without too much news because it does eat up a lot of time in each yes. week of the show. Uh, so that's coming soon. And the SAGs are on April 4th. Uh, Critics' Choice Awards happened in the last week. And uh, I think it's much more representative of what we were hoping would happen at the Globes. Mm-hmm. I think the... Um, a lot of the winners of the categories were more in line with the predictions that we made. The best example, of course, is for best screenplay and best performance by an actress. Went to Promising Young Woman, Emerald Fennell, and uh, Carrie Mulligan, respectively. Mm-hmm. So we were both very happy about that. Promising woman, Young Woman getting its dues, thankfully. Um, we've got some new categories that the Globes did not introduce, including cinematography, costume design, editing. So this surprised me. Uh, best cinematography went to Nomadland, which doesn't surprise me in the sense that Nomadland is a beautiful film to look at. It just surprises me in the fact that Mank didn't win. So it looks like the whole shebang of Mank being a black and white film and this and that and an ode to 40s filmmaking, it, it didn't make the cut. For best editing, it was actually a tie between Trial of Chicago 7 and Sound of Metal, which... I actually think it's pretty fair. And, of course, uh, Mank, Tenet, Father, and No Man Land lost to that. Um, let's see. I'm just trying to think of some of the other highlights. Um, Daniel Coulier and Chadman Bozen, respectively, mm. for Best Supporting Actor and Best Actor, won again. I think they're both locks for Oscars at this point. Best Supporting Actress went to Maria uh, Bakalova for uh, Borat, which is interesting because, obviously, she lost last week in the comedy category against uh, against like Rosamund Pike and that but keep in mind this is not a comedic category Zeke this is the best supporting actress which includes Ellen Burstead from Pieces of a Woman Glenn Close Olivia Colman Amanda Seyfried and Yon Yeo Jin uh, Jun from Minari the grandmother there you go she beat all of them which is kind of shocking um and then of course No Man Land best director best picture um, I think Tenet actually did win for something. It won for Best Visual Effects, as you can see. Uh, and Palm Springs won for the Best Comedy. Uh, Minari won for Best Foreign Language Film. Soul won for Score again, which I think that's a lock. I think Tenet, bye-bye. That score's not getting mm-hmm. any awards recognition anymore. Um, the song Speak Now from One Night in Miami won. 
which is interesting because it got upset last week with low C from The Life Ahead. So I think it's going to be between those two now for the best original song of the Oscars. Um, but yeah, that's kind of roughly how the critics went. Um, any there stuck out for you that you were quite happy with? I'm still very happy for Emerald Fennell and Promising Young Woman. Yeah, it's good to see a bit of recognition getting thrown Emerald Fennell's way. Yeah. Um, and the other one I want to mention, it's not letting me... Because I got sorry, no, it's not letting me use this link because I got I got a bracket here, but uh, they recently announced the nominations for the BAFTAs or the British Academy Film Awards, and it's kind of you know you got your similar categories here. The only one I wanted to mention, Zeke, because I was so happy to read this, mm-hmm. is for Best Direction, up there along with Thomas Vincent Burke, Lee Isaac Chung, Chloe Zhao, was Shannon Murphy for Baby Teeth. Oh. Which I was very happy to hear. So, many, many congratulations to Shannon Murphy. I couldn't help but read that. Well, we have to. Yeah, of course. I mean, you have to give it to. Let's let's go on. Let's give it. Let's give her a BAFTA. Let's give her a BAFTA. There's sadly no way she's going to win against Chloe Zhao, but the she nomination's gets, incredible. The nomination's enough. Yeah, I'm very happy it. about that. Good on you, BAFTAs. They're doing the right thing. And the critics, they're both doing the right thing. Now, I mentioned earlier that I was going to... There's one other film I saw that I wanted to mention in my career section. Mm-hmm. It said, if we want to move into career updates, of course. Uh, so I watched Greenfield. What this is, for those who don't know, is a very local film. It's Halo Films' second uh, release. because they're a mm-hmm. film, local film distributor that I sort of work with in, a, I guess, an unofficial capacity, but... Um, so I do a lot of the socials for them and all that. And we actually made the YouTube channel recently, so that's available for Halo Films. But uh, recently they premiered Greenfield, their second distributed film, at the WA Made Film Festival. So that was in the city. And I saw the, that was the first time I saw the film in full. I've seen some stuff in like the post, the mixing stage and that, but it was the first time I sat down and watched it from start to finish. Mm-hmm. And I actually really, really dug it. And I'm not saying it in a way I didn't expect to like it, but it's just one of those like surprise sleeper hits where I think you know, a lot of people might go into Hounds of Love not knowing anything about it, being like, mm-hmm. oh, well, you know, WA film, you know, this and that, and being like, wow, this is really incredible. And I really dug this story of very simply a man with no past walking into this town, pointing out the hypocrisy, leaving his mark in this sort of guise of male uh, toxic masculinity, and then leaving and bouncing. And I don't want to say that's a spoiler or not, but it, it, it's such a classic Western story. Mm-hmm. That's such a Western character right there. And I really dug that aspect. So it is a little like Hell or High Water in a, in a neon Western kind of way. It's not the exact same story, mm-hmm. of course, but it, it gave me that similar vibe in terms of the explored, explored themes and everything. And what I found funny is that in the Q&A after the film that they had with a bunch of the cast and the producer is they mentioned two sort of movements as inspirations for the film, which I thought was ironic because these are both things we've talked about in director's corners on this very show. They talked about the Dogma 95 movement, which we talked about on our uh, The Hunt episode, and Mumblecore, which we talked about in our Ladybird episode. So um, that comes to back on April 22nd. This is still kind of a promotion <laughs> because I'm tangentially involved, uh, but I actually really did enjoy it the film so there you go so check it out april 22nd at the backlot theater Ooh, exciting no dramas well i guess it is time jake for us to move into our film of the week but what are we watching this week on the show z 
We're watching Judas and the Black Messiah. I want to share something with you. Like the masses, I was in awe. When I first laid eyes on all the things you are. I heard that speech. I knew we make noise. I just thought it'd be in the streets. The Black Panthers are the single greatest threat to our national security. Our counterintelligence program must prevent the rise of a black messiah. You're looking at 18 months for the stolen car, five years for impersonating a federal officer, or you can go home. What do you want? Get close to Hampton. The Black Panthers are forming a rainbow coalition of oppressed brothers and sisters of every color. Neutralize him by any means necessary. America's on fire right now. And until that fire is extinguished, nothing else means a damn thing. Imagine what we could accomplish together. We can heal this whole city. You ain't tell me it was gonna be like this. These ain't no terrorists. We got a rat, man. Does anybody else know about me? No one knows your identity. Are you sure? We educate, we nurture, we feed, and we lobby. Perhaps we're here for more than just war with these bodies. We scream, and we shout, and we live by this anthem. But his power to the people really worked their ransom. When I dedicated my life to people, I dedicated my life. You get to go out there and talk about dying a revolutionary death because you don't have another person growing inside your body. Anyway, there's people. There's power. Offered a plea deal by the FBI, William O'Neill infiltrates the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party to gather intelligence on Chairman Fred Hampton. This film is directed by Shaka King. That's usually your line. That is. Yeah, <laughs> I stole it. Now from I guess you. we're finishing each other's sandwiches. Um, there you go. You see, if you let me, I would have said sentences, but. No, it's sandwiches, oh, okay. obviously. Um, his screenplay was also by Shaka King and Will Burson. So, mm. Jake, this is another one of these you know, contemporary awards season topics we've been talking about. In the last couple of weeks, yes. it has been brought up quite a bit. And Daniel Coulier in particular is yes. sweeping the supporting categories, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which uh, after seeing the film I think is... Very well earned. Yeah, Lakeith's well at least rocking up in the the best best character actor category too. Is right? he? Has he rocked up in any? I don't think I've seen him. Man, that is robbery. Not making any nominations at least. I'm that not is. sure. Mm. But yes, Coulier is definitely at least racking up in the support <laughs> category. Yeah, he's doing all right <laughs> for sure. Well, Zeke, yes. we both saw this in a theater yesterday, so we've yes, had a we day did. to digest. What was your ultimate takeaway from Judas? the black messiah uh i really dug it i really dug it um this was a really interesting sort of expiration of a of a historical a thing that actually happened too so this was mm. based um, on a true story it says at the beginning of the film it does um and 
Um, I really like the sort of the amalgamation of um, real archival footage over a mm. over a film. Um, in particular, the reconstruction of some archival footage at the start of the film. Yeah, that with stuff's great. The real uh, footage at the end of the film between obviously Lakeith Stanfield, who plays William O'Neill, and towards the end of the film, actually having William O'Neill's testimony mm. put in He's the end of the film. Piece, yeah. um, it's not really a spoiler, it's book ending. Um, obviously, it's a really interesting film because you would say it's predominantly a quartet of performances. In fact, it's probably more three performances that are quite prominent throughout the duration of the film, and that's um, Agent Mitchell, who's played by Jesse Plemons, Keith Stanford's character, William O'Neill, and Frederick Hampton, who's obviously Coulier, um, with, you know, a a decent, like, small minor, uh, minor role to Martin Sheen, who's near unrecognizable with the the makeup no, he's and, got his makeup on it's funny because um, yeah i saw his name in the opening credits i was like oh like i wonder who martin sheen's playing immediately it's his voice that's it's, the... <laughs> it's basically yeah but um, um, that was excellent like yeah he looks very unrecognizable but you would that. say that the three yeah the three central characters in this um are um Plemons character and then obviously o'neill and 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 then um coulier's character there are other like ensemble cast well, members throughout the movement, but that, that's the thing because I, I I don't know if I would label those three in particular. I actually don't know who I would, but I I consider this a, an ensemble film through and through. Like I think of many mm. characters when I think. Obviously, the two. I guess I just struggled to because like when watching the film, I struggled to remember everyone's names. Right. But then the three names that consistently stuck out regularly were these three names. So. And they're the most intrinsic to the plot, I think. Yeah. Well, I would put um, I would even put Deborah, the uh, Coulier's girlfriend, or Fred Hampton's girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. She, I would put her. I would, so she's quartet. definitely in that core. Yeah. But everyone there. act like every all the other Black Party, uh, Black Panther Party members. Right. I can't like they have scenes. They all get a scene or a moment, but it's very because it's yeah, it's quite tough. They're not. It's quite tough to remember all their names. They bring them up occasionally, but. Obviously, yeah, yeah. the the central story is between. Well, it's like, really between those two. Yeah, I mean, if you really wanted to boil it down, mm-hmm. um, they're obviously Roy Mitchell's part plays a huge part in in O'Neill's sort of um, corruption, I guess is what you would call it, mm-hmm. or, or his um, mentality. And I think he's going to be. He, we're going to talk about him for a while. I feel mm-hmm. like in this episode, I, but yeah, I think one thing I really enjoy straight off the bat with this film is how um the title is such a an accurate allegory for the events that transpired Mm. um like often i think we negate the power of a title of a film um like I think some directors actually utilize it as another tool in their arsenal mm. um, to help subtly tell the story or have the story unfold um, the way it, um, it's going to unfold. And then some of them more use it as either a comedic tool or a tool that just generally sums, summarizes what the film's going to be about. Yeah. Whereas this, this film directly took a biblical context and ported it over to a, a relatively contemporary part of history. I mean, this 
It's yeah. filmed set. Well, it's not ancient. Nineteen seventy, <laughs> so it's only fifty years removed. Um, and obviously, because of the almost universal, particularly in Western audiences, the universal interpretation of that that anecdotal comparison, um, you kind of have that sense of impending doom from the start of the film throughout the duration. You sort of, you're very, you know, from that opening address in that gigantic monolithic lecture hall by Martin Sheen's character pointing to a picture of Coulier's character saying, this guy is a, is a black messiah, we need to remove him from that. You get very quickly that that's the goal of this film. And, and his, obviously, being compared to Jesus, it's like, what happened to Jesus? And I think that um, that sense of impending doom is, is carried throughout the whole film. And you never feel like it's ever deviating from that course. It's only a matter of time more than anything right well i mean to go off your title it's true i think i think it's very subliminal i think a lot of people without thinking about it the title does um a a good example is once born a time in hollywood where you know think about that title so much but you realize like that is the ending of that film is that this is a fantasy this is a fantasy tale that's being told so there you know there's plenty of titles that have that subliminal thing where you when you think about it, it sort of clicks. Now, the whole thing about sort of this film for you being a downward spiral from the very beginning, we talked about this yesterday, and I was saying how I, I was watching this film much more literally in that I didn't know the historical context of the story. Mm-hmm. And obviously I, under, I know what the meaning of Judas and the Black Messiah is in terms of a religious context, but I wasn't actively thinking about it while watching the film. So I was watching this more as a straight-up thriller, than, than the downward spiral of knowing what's going to happen, particularly because I was curious what was going to happen. And we even talked yesterday about what the definition of a thriller even is. I would still label this in the thriller in the same way that, you know, Brian Cranston's The Infiltrator is a thriller. And, and that's a very similar story of someone entering the lion's den as a rat and trying to wheeze through it and I, I almost loved that it sort of pl- almost felt like it was playing that quite straight but just within the context mm-hmm. of an, a near all black cast much like Black Panther was such a big deal because it was just a straight superhero film that was full of a black cast mm-hmm. so I kind of saw it from that perspective of okay that's cool that they're sort of tweaking it this way but on the same token I say that and that's how I watch the film but you're 100% correct because most people will have some understanding going into this of either the historical context of the story or the biblical reference of the title. So I think most people will probably watch it the way that you were watching it. Yeah. But I like that it works both ways. I think yeah. it does, yeah. Yeah. Um, the story is quite, for the for, for the most part, is, is quite linear. Um, there's a couple of... Uh, cut-ins of of Lakeith Stanfield's TV interview, which Mm. we don't actually know what time that TV interview's occurring or what precisely. We know he sits down and he's being filmed, but we didn't realise that that interview actually took place some nearly 20 years after after the events of this thing, because they know but never specifically up until the end say what time that interview was being recorded. But even that's like part of... Obviously, that's less relevant to the title of the film, but in a historical context, there might be a lot of people who do watch this knowing exactly when that interview takes place Mm -hmm. or that what happens after that interview is aired 
they already know the answers to that. So I think there's enough of a thriller aspect of you mm. are wondering what, when is this interview taking place? Yeah, I mean, like I was saying, yeah, but they very rarely, I think they actually only call back to that interview twice and it's kind of like an act corner, uh, act transition okay. stone. I think they only come back to it once to talk about Jesse Plemons' character or O'Neill's perspective of Agent Mitchell and how he looks up to him. And they call back to it a second time, I think, when Coulier gets arrested for the $70 of ice cream. Um, Ridiculous. <laughs> which I guess would be technically his low point. But there's, that's a collection of ensemble low points and it starts with his character. I think the lo- the low point is a little further on in his imprisonment mm. when a certain thing sets a fire. Yeah. But yeah. So I think that's the only two times they do it and then they call back to it at the end and, and then they obviously make the, the transition. But it's not used a lot. So it's predominantly told linear, 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 linearly. I think that's linearly. In a linear fashion. And an anemone. And... Yeah, very rarely displaces or jumps around from that. Um, I think that should be said as well because I think some of the reviews I've read, not understanding the story mm. in full, is a lot of people said this is actually a really wonderfully um, constructed version of events in terms of a linear yeah. telling of this story. I mean, it's they, don't, a jump, really good they don't jump as much back and forth as like the Irishman does. Like, no. The amount of times that like they jump back to old Robert De Niro quite a bit. In that film. Yeah. But that's part of that structure is he's telling you that story. And you can argue that it's the same thing here with um, O'Neill telling the story mm-hmm. and we've been told that. Does it? the film start with that interview? It kind of does. Yeah. It's part of the montage yeah. at the beginning. But... Um, it's definitely... It, but o- it is, it's, uh, the way we're receiving this is from the perspective of O'Neill telling it in the broadcast. Yeah. And he is he is the protagonist and I, and I don't know if we completely agree on that. I think he is. Like, okay. Well, I mean, it, it, this depends because it's like, well, I mean, at the end of the day, a protagonist and an antagonist doesn't necessarily mean good or bad guy. And I think well, this, exactly. is, this is a binary um, perspective that is kind of lost on a lot of people that just because um, he's called pro and then technically the righteous good guy is called the antagonist doesn't make him the bad guy. If the goal for O'Neill was to infiltrate and lead to the downfall of Coulier's character. He does accomplish his goal, and he yeah. undergoes change in the process. So, yeah, you're right. He is actually essentially the protagonist. He's not the good guy. No, exactly. He's the bad guy. He's a bad guy protagonist. And there's almost a bit of it, as someone like me who was watching it as that thriller, mm. there was a realisation quite late when I, when it was like, oh, wow. Because my assumption, and I think you know, a lesser film that wanted to muddle with history, would be like, oh, maybe... You know, O'Neill, he invent he gets further into the Black Panther movement, and he he realizes their cause, and he realizes the understanding, and and I think there is a bit of that in there where he's having a bit of an identity crisis, being thrown around between these two organizations, the FBI and the Black Panthers, but ultimately, that's not what it's about at all. You're right; he doubled downs on the original meaning of his, you know, the badge is a stronger weapon than the gun or the knife. Mm. He double downs on that. Yeah. Or doubles down? I think he gets, like... Yes go? <laughs> the The thing that he gets lost in is not the, the Black Panther rhetoric. He gets lost in Frederick Hampton's optimism and desire for unity. I mean, the fact that 
Hampton's character joins three different groups of minority parties, including one of them being a white group in in these, you know, lower class, white, lower socioeconomic, mm. you know, they're branded rednecks, but they are just lower socioeconomic uh, white people who yeah. joined this coalition because... Was it like a church? Is that what they walked in on? Uh, it was more like a group meeting. Yeah, okay. like a, yeah, yeah, But it, yeah, it was sort of like, you know, they had like a preacher and sort of stuff like that. But They're all in one But uh, that's a fascinating <laughs> subversion of what sometimes is perceived as quite a, a, a binary, quite a polarizing issue that there were good people and bad people. And it's like, no, mm-hmm. no, there were rich and this changing it more to there were richer and poor people yeah and there are people that were struggling through police brutality because of their lower socioeconomic displacement not necessarily because of the color of their skin because we need to bear in mind that this takes place in 1971 so this is actually kind of after the central part of the civil rights movement in america which took place in the mid mid to late 60s Mm um uh this one actually takes place in 71, so it's actually talking about it as a slight shift. Like, there's still civil rights movements here, but it's it's more towards those who are poorer and treated like such versus those who are richer and kind of, you know, that displacement of wealth, which is why the, the biblical allegory is also such a, an accurate one, because what Jesus did is he looked after the poor people while, you know, the Roman occupation were the rich people oppressing these you know, this poor thing. So it's like when you see that speech that Hampton delivers in the, in the church with all three groups present, um, I think what he gets infatuated with is not the cause of the Black Panther, the original cause of the Black Panther. It's he gets lost in this, this, you know, potential prophet, this potential Messiah who could lead these people into a brighter future. Mm-hmm. But there's even, there is the scene where, this is leading into his final act against mm-hmm. against Fred Hampton and, and the Black Panthers, is the conversation he has with Roy, where Roy, Roy points out the emotional sort of... Uh, the, the way that O'Neill, I don't want to say buys into it, but like, you know, he is chanting along with the crowd and he is very invested and half the crowd is crying. And he points out, he's like, I saw you there. And I think my argument in terms of whether or not I don't want to say regardless of what what the message is or what what the uh, the fight is for. I think there is a sense of justice that he as and that that's the other thing is that he is a black man and obviously he's picked to infiltrate this group because he's a black man. You don't think you necessarily would be able to get away with it if he wasn't. But at the same time, there there is something to be said about that and then the police because that, the police brutality that this comes after their headquarters are mm-hmm. blown down. So there is an anger behind. Oh, and, and of course, like their people are dying. He dies yeah. in the hospital transfer, or um, I think this was before the guy gets shot at, like that power plant yeah, thing. It's, that is before it's that, there, but it's in the immediate, midst of all yeah. of this happening. So I think, I think with that context, there's there's a sense that O'Neill. This is why I say the identity crisis. I think he's so torn. And I don't, I don't know if, again, if it's completely related to their specific message or what they're doing when they're going to these, these group meetings and trying to spread the message and this and that. I think it's there is a sense of justice that he wants to be a part of, but then he also... I mean, he says in the interview he has that respect for Roy Mitchell mm-hmm. 
and there's a part of him that likes that aspect of it too. So I think that's why I think he's easily the most interesting character. And like Daniel Coulier, his performance is incredible, mm-hmm. amazing. But he's playing a character that we understand very early on. And I think the complexity of O'Neill, and especially the decision he makes at the end, is I hated him by the end. I absolutely hated him <laughs> for the decision that he makes. And again, this is interesting because you look at something like The Infiltrator, where it's a very similar story. Brian Cranston is. You know, he breaks into the lines then of, of the the um, the Pablo Escobar sort of thing that's going on there with the drug trafficking and this and that. And, and we know he's the good guy. He's infiltrating the bad guys. And mm-hmm. it's like you said earlier, the protagonist isn't necessarily the good guy of the story. And that's what's interesting about here is that we as a society have kind of grown up where I think we are more democratic. Uh, de- demo- democratic? Jeez, I'm forgetting mm-hmm. to see there. Uh, as a society, and we look back on this as like this was horrible treatment of black people. So we're in a position now where we do generally, I feel like we're going into this film generally siding with the Black Panthers because yeah. of the injustice that has been uh, happened to them. So you're right, it is fascinating that we are really following the villain of the story, I guess. It's all contextual, it depends who you're rooting for. Yeah. But what happens at the end is depicted horribly, the violence is horrible. And it's mm. meant to show you, like, this is messed up and this shouldn't be happening. And um, I guess to tie it back to O'Neill, I just I think that he's a piece of shit. <laughs> he is. And I, I think that um, I think that really does come out in Stanfield's performances. It's mm. quite interesting. He's great, too, yeah. Um, to have him play a character that's so slimy and... Mm. Um, so just very much just trying to he's he's a character that's honestly for the most part fueled fueled by self-preservation hmm. um like that's the thing that really keeps him going like okay, whether it's a peasy rat yeah <laughs> yeah and i think that that comes out in his performance and the conflict that he has that he never feel he feels like he's you know at a time he feels like he's getting ahead because you know he's serving the the FBI, and he like tries to brand it as if he's like almost like an FBI operative, but he's mm-hmm. not. He's he's a tool being utilized by them, and and Plemons' character shift in that scene in particular, where he's like, "Well, if you don't do this, you just go back to prison." Right. Despite all the efforts he had done prior to that, and um. There is that push and pull, you're right, of, of there is the threat of being sent to prison. But yeah. I think at a certain point, I'm trying to think if there is a specific point where it becomes evident that he won't be sent to prison. Mm-hmm. But he almost... I mean, he's never... This is this is what's great about his performance, is is the guilt that he carries with him. Yeah. And and we talked about this guy. There's, there's not a scene where he's like, I... I repent my sins. I feel so guilty. He never says that. It's all on his face. It's all in his eyes, yeah, well, as you said. And I think it's it's important to note that he never actually, um, yeah, asks for forgiveness, even in, and he just carries that weight with him, mm-hmm. and it gets heavier and heavier by the day, especially with how broken, you know, his very subtle face facial expressions get. Like his eyes are like always watering. He's 
you know, he's starting to twitch. He's he's quivering a little bit, and he just looks distraught in the mm. last act. And the when he offers, when he says, "Do you want another drink?" Like that final mm. sort of, "I'm going to kill you," and he's bawling his eyes out as he's saying. And I, a part of me was kind of not giggling, but like it was just a sad irony. Yeah. Of the simplicity of like, I imagine from from Fred Hampton's point of view, like, why is he reacting this way? That something's going on when he's offering me this drink, but having no clue that he really was in danger. Yeah, I think that yeah, and it really comes out in that last uh, sequence where we actually get to see the real um, O'Neill uh, present his mm. his. Broadcast on, um, I think it's. Oh, yeah, I'm trying to. I had a. It's, it's like part two of a, a, of a docu mini series. Yeah. Let me see if I can find like it. Like a HBO quick. series, I think, something like that. But he, you know, and he's trying to say because he's got a kid. You know, he's he's got a son at this point. He's like, what what do you say to your kid about what you've what you've done? And he tries to simply say that, oh, well, I was just another foot soldier, and at least I didn't not take a stance i did something yeah, and that and you really could tell he me. you could well exactly that it's, line yeah and it's i think it is meant to be angled as if you're meant to be incredibly angry by this because not only have you seen the fallout of his of his actions i mean in a very graphic scene a very graphic sequence we've mm. seen this you know this judas and the black messiah we've seen this whole story play out the way it mm. sort of does very similar in the in, in the bible but we've got to see it with our own eyes it's far more impactful when you get to see the violence that unfolded and to see you know coulier's character not not even defend himself he doesn't even get a moment of of final um clarity no, or resolution because he's, he's not he's a, he's been knocked out and so it's all done on on his partner's face um and that is one of the best shots in the film, that mm. shallow depth of field, just oh, all in her expression. Her when, when he's shot. In, yeah. a great, impactful, show-don't-tell sort of stuff. And so when we get to see William O'Neill's, like the real him, presenting uh, that final sequence, um, with him trying to rationalise to, context, the, to yeah. the... Yeah, we have that context. Like, we're not watching a broadcast now. We've watched... The, we've watched the story play out and this is yeah. how he sees that perspective and you could tell and it comes back to it's like obviously what's the following uh, black text box say well uh, later that like when that when that episode aired he committed suicide yeah so, so the th- fact is he couldn't even he couldn't even do what technically what Judas did which was at least confront his sins and acknowledge that he did wrong um, because all he did was I guess he confronted his sins, but he didn't atone for them, I guess is the... Well, yeah, just the fact that it, it took this objective documentary, which is uh, called Eyes on the Prize, part two is what this was, uh, that the interview takes place on, that I think seen... I mean, it's telling, you're right, that it, and you said this yesterday, it wasn't, it wasn't the day that the doco was filmed. It wasn't when he was talking about this to a camera. It was when it was reflected back on him, and he saw the objective I mean I would love to sit down and watch this now just to see this thing that I'm guessing is like an hour long mm-hmm. made this man a life of regret over the edge and he kills himself mm. like I would love to see what 
And we kind of saw it. But we saw the words that he said. We saw the true. story that or took place. But we we didn't get to see. He didn't get the trial by the public. That he kind of no warranted from that from that interview. He never even allowed that to happen. And that says a lot about the type of person, type of character he was. Um, that he wasn't ready to confront that sort of stuff. And I I think Lakeith Stanfield really really brings that home in his performance. You really hate this slimy character, I think, and by the end of it. Um, and he gets... Honestly, he gets little to no uh, empathy or sympathy from the viewer by the end of it. No, Because I of what he... What happens, yeah. System, yeah. Because we, we see the result of his actions. The actions that, frankly, you know, all he had to do was atone for his original sin of stealing that car and impersonating a federal officer but he never did that so instead Mm. he let all these other people over the course of time get systematically hurt when the fact of the matter is in the first 15 minutes he he just acknowledged he had done something wrong and atoned for what he had done wrong all these other people would still potentially be alive yeah but then it's interesting because bringing this back to to mitchell to um to jesse plemons character He's sort of in his own little push and pull as well because he is also very responsible for O'Neill being tempted by this this small level of power he's getting him, especially at the end when he gives him the keys. Like this, you know, you can live this life now and make legitimate money, um, but also sort of manipulating him to do the right thing, to earn the badge, to be an FBI mm-hmm. informant. But then we see uh, Roy Mitchell also go through his own bit of a push and pull when he's talking to his superiors and they're very casually talking about how the real informant tortured and killed the fake informant in the Black Panther Party. Mm-hmm. And he is torn by that. He's like, that. well, that's that's wrong. He should be charged for that, that he can't do that. And because it's all part of this little game that they're playing. So I like that we see that. And he also, he, like his daughter is not threatened, but brought into this hypothetical conversation where he does feel like his family's being threatened and his life may be in, being threatened. So I like that he has his own little push and pull. So he's not entirely to blame because there's parts where you're like, okay, he's generally looking out for O'Neill, inviting him to his house and stuff. I mean, that that could all be part of the mm-hmm. ploy. But I like that he was given a bit of a humanization as well in the story. He's not just a straight villain. Per no, se. absolutely. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Um, I think we could jump into scene uh, highlight scenes. Seeing the highlight scenes. Say scene highlights. Um, oh, oh my it's goodness. It's got to be, uh, and I'm probably sh- pretty sure this is what's giving him his awards that scene where he's giving that address before the right, massacre yeah. of people there's a lot going on in that that sequence it's not just his rhetoric and his his anger like you said and his conviction and the ability that he has it it really is the cultivation that he is this messiah he's this person that's going to lead these classes of socio you know low socioeconomic people potentially out of it's it's everyone's part in that scene it's his part it's um, Lakeith Stanfield's part in the, in the sequence where, like you said, he's getting invested in the rhetoric. It's it's Jesse Plemons coming to the meeting and just kind of doing in, like in an there. evil sort of Palpatine-esque. <laughs> like. Well, it's funny because at that moment, I actually wasn't sure if he generally was shifting his uh, analogy because this comes after that conversation he has with his uh, his operator or his superior. And I thought, I'm like, wow, is he going through a change 
as well. That's where my head was at with this whole thing. Yeah. And, and of course, it was just used as blackmail later. So it's also, yeah, exactly. And it's also, you know, Deborah, Deborah Fishback's, uh, you mm. know, uh, do, sorry, Dominic Fishback, You've Deborah. Too mixed Johnson. up. <laughs> nah. um, it's her reaction in it because she's obviously oh, she's pregnant amazing, yeah. and she's got a whole different context. So it's the cultivation of all four of those sort of perspective shifts. Um, well, those ideologies all being put into one scene, and it's 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 the if there's a money, the money shot or the money sequence, it's it's that sequence. Fair enough. Yeah, I like because even her like her crying. That's a great shot of her watching and crying that speech. But I I loved it because it's like I also got the sense of not only is it what he's saying, but like this is mm. the father of her unborn child. Yeah, and just that personal angle to it. So, um, I think she's great, and I've actually heard. I doubt it. I know some people are really rooting she gets a supporting actress nom. I don't know if that's going to happen, but, uh, you know, voting only closed recently, so if that conversation's happened recently, maybe there's a chance. Um, my highlight scene is a little different from that. It's a little less flashy, but it's one that I really dug, and it's the scene where O'Neill... Uh, well, first off, it, it's led from the scene where they, they visit... Um, I come where they visit, but it's where he O'Neill was first recognised as the car thief. Uh, by that guy that he at the beginning of the film that he thieved out and there is sort of that he's trying to call him out but he's being silenced mm-hmm. and it's like okay you know he's maybe he's on thin ice he's getting recognised but he'll be alright and then it's followed by a scene where he's immediately taken in the car you know by gunpoint driven to the corner and basically interrogated by the Black Panthers and I loved first off it's a great scene of just tension him trying to hotwire the car and trying to prove that you know his story is true which mm. is mostly is true he did have a fake FBI batch. He does live cars. And when he, even though I was like, oh, God, please hotwire the car so you don't get caught out, I was also like, well, he really should know how to hotwire the car because mm-hmm. this is a true story. He's not really lying about any of the things that he's saying. If they put a lie detector on him, it'll probably yeah. come up all right. But it was still that great sense of tension and, and uh, showing me that the Black Panthers were actually quite switched on. That they weren't just like, oh, wait, oh, that's fine. That's just a crazy guy over there. They were actually like, mm. no, we need to find out what the hell they're talking about and make sure this guy isn't a rat. Yeah. So I actually kind of liked that they were a bit switched on. Um, so yeah, that's my little little scene, my little highlight scene right there. No you. dramas. Well, Judas and the Black Sire is currently out in cinemas near you. Please Unless check you it don't out. live in WA. And then Tough Bickies. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> well, on, that- it's on um, probably a streaming platform in America. It might be on HBO. It might be, which we're going to mention in just a minute. Actually. No drama. Speaking of streaming platforms and cinemas, Jake, what is new in them? It's a big one. It's big a week. big one. So strap in your seats. I'm going to read what's coming to cinemas first because we were joking that when we went to see this film, almost every film that's on this list was actually they played a trailer for ahead <laughs> of this film. Mm-hmm. So that was quite funny. Crisis is new in cinemas this week. It sees a drug trafficker organizing a smuggling operation while the recovering addict seeks the truth behind her son's disappearance. It stars Gary Oldman and Army Hammer. A screaming Gary Oldman, as you might say. <laughs> Everyone! Everyone! Undone is an Australian documentary that's coming to Hoyts this week. It follows a professional surfer, Laura en- Enver? Enver? E-N-E-V-E-R. Uh, Enever. Laura Enever, I'm going to say. it's. Uh, yep, so that's coming out this week. French Exit arrives at Luna this week and follows a widowed New York socialite, played by Golden Globe nominee Michelle Pfeiffer, and her aimless son, Lucas Hedges, move to Paris after she spends the last of her husband's inheritance. 
Um, so this was up for the Golden Globe for her performance. Mm-hmm. And it seems it seems fun. I like Lucas Hedges a lot, so maybe he'll make me pull the trigger on that one. There you go. We'll see. see. Uh, finally, well, finally for cinemas, White Riot, uh, which plays at Lunar Outdoor on Sunday the 21st, and it explores the vital national protest movement Rock Against Racism that formed in 1976 when a group of artists united to take on the National Front. So that was one of the trailers we saw. It looked pretty good. I kind of like this surge lately of like 70s um, up, uh, what's it called? Like 70s protest-filled uh, docos that we've been getting a lot of yeah. lately, a lot of archival footage, which looks good. Uh, coming to stand this week is Schindler's List, Steve Jobs, not the one you quoted earlier. This is the mm. 2015 Steve Jobs. Uh, Dirty Dancing, the 1987 version, and both Now You See Me films. Coming to Disney Plus this week is the series premiere of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And I think it's only six episodes this series, so... Wowzers. Don't, wowzers. Don't expect too much of that. And finally, I can't not mention this. This comes to HBO, of course, or HBO Max. We can get it on binge here in Australia. Zack Snyder's Justice League, or the Snyder Cut. Finally comes out this Thursday, the 18th. And it is the four-hour director's cut of one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. Justice League. Disgusting. Well, I thankfully, think... we are not watching that next week I was going to say, are you keen to watch it at all, the Justice League movie? Nope, not at all. You don't want to do it next week on the nope, show? No, I'm good. <laughs> I would much rather do another film that is in the award season talk. But, Jake, what are we watching? This week on the show, or next week, I should say, watching One Night in Miami. Ready for tonight? I'm as ready as a person can be. After the fight, we're all coming back here for the champs of victory, Paul, yeah? Don't be late. Minister Malcolm X. Good news, the chariot is coming. You know I'm the greatest. That's right. Jim Brown takes the ball. Your record is going to stand the test of time. How's everybody feeling tonight? All together, yeah. (laughs) New heavyweight champion of the world. Say, champ, you don't suppose you could sign an autograph? Yeah, of course, man. Give him an autograph, Jim. Actually, Mr. Cook. (laughs) Oh, sure thing, brother. Don't you think it's about time to party? Tonight is a chance for us to reflect. You mean no one else is coming? Well, this is off to a hopping start. You all are a bright and shining future. You need to understand what is at stake here. Everything's not so black and white like you make it out to be. But we are fighting for our lives. You know I know what's going on out there, right? In the aftermath of Cassius Clay's defeat of Sonny Liston in 1964, the boxer meets with Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown to change the course of history in the segregated South. Mm. So we're going from Shaka King to Regina King. I don't think they're related. I tried looking it up. Um, but, um, I mean, King is a pretty common surname. I guess so. so. I mean, half the producers on Judas are named King. There you go. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I've managed to catch this film in the last week. I will definitely be giving it a rewatch before next week on the show. It mm. is a really good film. And I'm going to have to get a hold of a Prime account again to watch this yeah, one, but, this but I'll make it. I'll stage it. play to screen adaptation, so um, it'll be really interesting to talk about next week on the show. Mm, exciting. I'm excited for this one, because yeah. you're right. It's probably, hopefully this, that's the thing. Next episode, when we do this, the Oscar Best Picture noms will be out. And I have a feeling we're going to have done almost all of them. Like at least eight out of nine, including One Night Mammy, which I think is a very good chance we'll get in there. There we go. Well, 
Thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with One Night in Miami. <laughs>